good everyone and welcome to the T-Mobile Sprint Regulatory Update Call. Today's conference is being recorded. At this time, I would like to turn the conference to Jonathan Chaplin. Please go ahead, sir. Good morning all. Thanks for joining us. This is Jonathan Chaplin from New Street Research. We're delighted to be joined today by Peter Adderton, who will be known to most of you as the founder of Boost. Peter's been keeping us all entertained with his thoughts on this deal on Twitter and in the press over the course of the last couple of weeks. If you're not following him, you uh, you ought to be. Peter, thanks for joining us today. We really appreciate it. I'm also joined on the call this morning by Blair Levin, Vivek Stalem, and Ethan Lacey, who you all know. We're going to try a little bit of a different format on the call today, a bit more of a free-flowing conversation between the five of us, which is going to be a, a challenge because we're in four different parts of the country. So please bear bear with us if we stumble over each other a little bit. I'm going to start off with just a couple of questions for Peter to set the stage. Peter, it seems like you've had pretty accurate insight into how this process has been developing over the course of the last couple of weeks. So just to kick things off, I'd love love a sense of where you think we are now. Has a deal been inked that's just being papered? Is it still being negotiated? Could it still all fall apart? And when do you think we hear something from the DOJ? Well, I mean, I think if you look at it, obviously a lot has changed. You know, when we went down and saw the DOJ about um, about two weeks ago, uh, I think we went in there feeling that there was about a 90% chance this would get approved and they were looking for a reason to approve it. We highlighted, I think, some very important points to the DOJ that I don't, I'm not sure that they actually thought about. And I said if our meeting was successful, then we would have a delay in the in the announcement, and that's exactly what we've had. So we, we highlighted a lot of things to the DOJ, but I think it's moved from you know, the DOJ looking for reasons to approve it to now actually making sure that whatever those reasons are, that they're, they're legitimate. And a lot of the questions the Department of Justice staff were asking us were very relevant to who actually is going to own this and can it can the new owner ensure that everything that you've been saying, Peter, about protecting the prepay, keeping competition there, making sure the dealers and the employees are kept safe, can we enforce that onto the new owners? And I think that what we said to them is the only way you can do that is to approve the new owner. So we've really been pushing, and I think this is probably what's taking place down there, we've been pushing that they can't give the merger the 100% green light until they actually know who that is. So setting out the terms of what they want, specifically what they're trying to do, would be key. And then the second one would be that the final approval of the merger happens once they've negotiated who that buyer will be. Now, what you're reading a lot about in the press over the last probably a week in relation to the cable companies and them trying to find a buyer could be their way of doing what we said, is ensuring that before you approve this merger, you have a buyer. So I'd like to think that that's probably the impact that we had on uh, when we met with them a couple of weeks ago. Got it. And I think the press reports in the last couple of days have suggested that Dish is definitively the buyer and that, the, that there was even a, pr- a price in a Bloomberg article yesterday of, uh, of $6 billion. Is it your sense that that's where we've ended up, or are there more than dish at the table as potential buyers here, and it's all still being worked out? Well, I mean, the number I heard last week from uh, a lot of reporters was $11 billion, and I just said that that's just absolutely crazy. You don't need $11 billion to do this. And then I heard uh, $6 billion, which is more in line if you look at where boost valuation is. You take the spectrum that we think is going to come out, and you take the potential network bill that you would have to do. I think the $6 billion probably is a, a more realistic number. 
But from what I've been told, a lot of the information that we're hearing about DISH is not coming from the T-Mobile side. It's coming from the Sprint side. So I think we've got to take a little bit of you know, a grain of salt on that. And I wouldn't be surprised if it isn't them just sending across a smoke signal to the regulators as an idea to try to get right. that uh, to try to get that flushed out a little bit more. So I think that there's no. I just don't believe for a second that the um, that the DOJ is going to specifically say Charlie and Dish, this is yours. Go do what you want with it. Um, I just don't think that that's the case. I think that they're going to require more people through the bidding process. I think Goldman's who's been appointed to handle the divestitures on behalf of T-Mobile, and they're certainly not signalling to the rest of us that this is a slam dunk for, for the cable companies. Okay, so you think the cable companies are still in the, still in the discussions. And it, so if it's DISH, cable companies, who else is still looking at, at bidding on assets here, do you think, Peter? Are you involved as an independent third entity looking to bid on these assets, or are you partnering with, with one of the other guys? Well, I think the way that it's going to work is that I think there'll be at least 30 to 40 people that are interested. And I'm, by the way, I'm getting contacted by foreign carriers from Turkey all the way through that are interested in taking a look at this. I think what you'll find is it'll probably start out with a significant amount of people that are interested. And I think that's going to dwindle down very, very quickly to probably five or six. And of the five or six, I think that's where you'll see a line, uh, kind of like partnerships start to form between you know the five or six potential bidders. And then you'll kind of narrow that down to three. That's how I think it's going to be. I think a lot of them are going to fall off very, very quickly once they start looking at the, the deal, the terms, and the transaction. Um, I mean, there's a lot of people out there that are talking about purchasing uh, Boost, and a lot of them want to do it through leverage, a little, as little amount of equity as possible. And with leverage, you need a bunch of things, as we all know, to make that work. So I think you're going to see you know, alliances form towards the end of this process. So I think that that's what you'll end up seeing. And whether that's a combination of a cable company uh, someone like me who's a management team that's running, uh, that understands how to run prepaid and, and knows the dealer network, you know, along with a, uh, a PE fund, I think that that's where you'll start to see the, the alliances start to form fairly quickly. And I think if you're Goldman, you'll probably be trying to form those alliances as soon as you possibly can. Got it. And Peter, does this whole, this sort of 30 to 3 to 1 bidding process have to entirely run its course before the DOJ can sign off on a deal? I think your point at the beginning was they have to know who the buyer is before they know whether this is a deal that cures the competitive harms. And so if that's the case, are we still weeks away from a decision? Well, I think we're going to be not weeks away from a decision. I think we'll be, we'll be days away from a decision. I think we'll be weeks away from knowing whether um, what that transaction is going to look like. And I think, you know, as I said to the DOJ, you've got to put the pressure back onto new T-Mobile. You can't close the transaction and then give them 120 days, they push for an extension, well, there's a $3 million a day penalty, and suddenly this thing just dwindles down. Um, the other thing is that the boost business itself isn't going to get stronger when it sits in jeopardy, right, because you've got everybody sitting there going, well, who's our new owner, what are we doing? And I'm seeing that now in talking to, you know, I've got communication with close to the 5,000 independent wireless dealers that are out there, and a lot of them are leaving, closing their stores, not sure what's going on. Um, the, the signals coming from Sprint to the independent wireless dealers is, I'm looking after my family. You should do the same. So there's no, this is not this is not getting better the longer it takes. So I think that you know we stress to the DOJ that it doesn't need to take that long to get this transaction done. Um, so we think that they can move very very quickly. And I think you need to put the pressure back on the T-Mobile to make sure that they're under the gun. That if they don't come up with a viable 
um, competitor, fourth competitor, and somebody who truly is interested in maintaining the competition, then the merger should be blocked anyway. So, yeah, I, I would argue that the final decision is going to be a little bit longer, but I think the interim, we're going to know what they're going to be required, and, and I'm pretty sure that T-Mobile will be happy to get that done as fast as they possibly can. And Peter, in your discussions with, with the DOJ, what was your list of must-haves for this deal that would really establish this package of assets as a, as a credible fourth carrier? You need three things in order for, well, look at the MVNO part first, and then I'll look at the carrier second. So in order for an MVNO to be successful, you need economics that work. The problem here in the U.S. is that they do not have economics that work. I mean, in fact, if you look at it today, the, five, the four for $100 line that Metro PCS and Boost offer today at $25, obviously, for, for, per line, they're actually, the consumer's actually buying data cheaper than any MVNO can on the T-Mobile network today. So a consumer can buy data cheaper than an MVNO can. The problem you have here is around the globe, and I'm obviously actively involved in MVNOs around the globe, we have what we call a retail minus model. So if you have a $50 plan or a $60 plan, you may get 45 or 50% off that plan. And no matter what the retail price is, so if the carrier decides that they want to lower their prices or they get aggressive, it doesn't really matter to you because you still get the same margin with a floor. That model doesn't exist here in the U.S. No provider provides that. So the first thing is to change the economic model to make it set up for success. So that's the first thing we said to them. We gave them five different ideas that they could potentially do that. One, which was the ultimate, and then you know two, which is the retail minus model, which is, I think, where we need to net out. The second one is you need to have access, a full-stack MVNO or a thick MVNO, as we call it, outside um, America, which is access to the core network. That allows you to route your traffic. That allows you that the carrier literally just sees your, sees your network as a roaming sim. So you've all been to Europe and you've been to Australia and Asia. You can see when you arrive, you can change which network you want. Do you want O2? Do you want Vodafone? Do you want Optus? Do you want Singtel? So you can change that based on the profile that you're, you're interested in. Now, the carrier will automatically try to default you to a network, but if you don't get coverage in that area, you can actually switch networks. So it's very similar mentality that we have. Now, most MVNOs around the globe that are extremely successful have their own HLR. So it does not work without the ability to be able to migrate, and I'll talk a little bit about how that works in the, in the fourth network. But until you can actually migrate that customer in and out of the network and route that traffic, it really is going to be pointless because you're, you're, you're literally just T-Mobile's customers that you happen to be borrowing for a second period of time. So we think that that's the second thing that we're, we're looking for. And then the third thing which we push to them is the spectrum divestiture. If you go back and look at when I originally launched Boost here in America, our two biggest competitors were Leap and Metro. And, and Metro had a really good model, which I think really is a great footprint for what we're trying to set up and what the DOJ should be looking for. And then you don't need to have a nation... We don't need four nationwide networks. We, I mean, we don't need to be building a network out in Whitefish, Montana. Right? It just doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any economic sense for a small carrier to do that. But if you look at Metro PCS, you know, they take San Diego as an area that they set up a network. You've got Mexico to the south, you've got the ocean to the west, the desert to the east, and kind of Camp Pendleton to the north. You can literally build a network in that area where most of those customers aren't leaving that area. And if they do leave that area, they can roam onto somebody else's network. Well, what that does is it allows you to offer cheaper pricing. It allows your margins to be better, to reinvest back in the network. So instead of that 45% margin that I was talking about that you get when you're roaming on a new T-Mobile network, you know, that can jump to 80 to 85% margins because you're now on your own network. But you can also now offer that network out to other MVNOs and really have a very good wholesale model 
for, for that network. So there's the three critical things that we think are required in order to truly set up a fourth competitor. But requiring the fourth competitor to come in and have to build out rural coverage when arguably we're going to have three doing that anyway, and most of, you know, Verizon, you know, Sprint runs on Verizon, most of them do have roaming, domestic roaming agreements anyway, it doesn't make any sense. Got it. And how much spectrum would it need to be viable as a fourth, as a standalone company? As little as 40 and as much as 60 megahertz of that 2.5. You know, most of the areas that you would look to build out, especially if you took the boost business, is in urban. So that 2.5 would work, uh, would work quite, quite well. From what our team has, has told me, they believe that that would work well. And, and again, the core to that is having the ability to be able to route that traffic. So we really truly need to have access to the core network. So if on one street it doesn't work and I haven't got my network covered, but I can actually roam back onto new T-Mobile, that I have the ability to be able to do that. And by the way, not just T-Mobile, AT&T and Verizon. <laughs> so we've pushed for the non-exclusive. So the new fourth competitor can have its own network where it makes sense, so kind of like a massive Wi-Fi hotspot, if you like, but yeah. then have the ability to be able to decide where that traffic goes based on the pricing that we get from any one of those carriers. And that, tra- that creates a truly fourth competitor. So, Blair, I'd, I'd love to bring you in on this point. So the idea that Peter's proposing here I think is really interesting, concentrating the network build around big population centers where you can create where you can create scale with the minimum sort of capex and opex requirements and then use your use the T-Mobile network for roaming everywhere else what are the political implications of of that kind of a of a build for for a fourth national carrier do you think it flies in the context of the FCC's objectives and also in the context of how a fourth carrier has been defined by the DOJ <laughs> there are so many different questions. I'll, let me let me just start by saying I think that you know obviously for those of us on on this phone call, there's an awful lot of economic logic to it. And what I think you're asking me is uh, relates to the fact that the FCC, as a matter of politics, uh, owing a lot to the structure of the United States Senate as well as the Electoral College to some extent tends to, shall we say, over-index in its discussion of rural broadband and under-index for urban. If you just look at the amount of time and attention we spend uh, talking about rural broadband and the money we spend on it relative to the number of people who don't have broadband in their homes in urban America and rural, um, there, there is a real kind of political issue with that. Having said that, I think in this case, Two dimensions. Number one, I think the FCC would argue that because of their tremendous negotiating skills, they've already covered rural America, so we don't need to cover it twice. It would be a little bit odd, actually, to say having approved the deal without these kinds of conditions, without any resemblance of a fourth, because if you were simply divesting boost as the FCC required, I don't think anyone would argue that in and of itself would create an opportunity for the fourth. Um, the FCC it would be odd for them to now argue that that in, as part of that divestiture, you have to put new conditions on them. However, you then get to the next problem, which is the state's attorneys general. I, I think the state's attorney general are going to have a lot of questions. We'll chat about that at some other time. But um, I do think that 
in some places the, the notion that rural areas aren't going to be covered by this new fourth will raise a number of problems. And I, I would note that both the Texas and the Arizona attorney generals who have not joined the lawsuit, but nonetheless, they both wrote letters to T-Mobile and they expressed concerns about a couple of issues. One about, one about the impact on MVNOs and having th- th- this transaction does not solve that problem in that period where DISH or whoever is the winner is building up their own network. In other words, for at least some period of time, it'll be difficult for other MVNOs to get the deal, or at least that's the argument of these two AGs. And secondly, in an issue that was in a way curiously not raised in the complaint but could be added, there are a lot of small rural uh, wireless companies that are very dependent on uh, roaming agreements. They, I, I know that they have visited with the, both the DOJ and they filed things with the FCC, they too would have a problem. So that, uh, you know, they, they were very dependent on Sprint. I think you have those kinds of isolated problems. I don't see that. If that's the only thing standing between approval and non-approval, my guess is that hurdle gets addressed or ignored. But if that by itself isn't going to block the deal. But will it be raised? Absolutely, because rural issues always get raised. So, Peter, Blair brings up, and the the interesting issue of the state AG's perspective on all of this. Do you have a sense of what the bright lines are for uh, for the state AGs? What they would need to see to consider this a, a genuine fourth competitor? So, so it's ironic you say that because I was actually one of the first in. It would have been June of last year to see the AGs. Um, so I actually I think was the first one to walk through the doors to highlight these issues. The Attorney Generals are more concerned about the jobs, the dealers, and the low-income areas. You do have some states that are more interested in the urban, uh, sorry, in the uh, in the rural area, but that's a very small part of the Attorney Generals. I believe last week when they came out with their lawsuit that that was more around a photo opportunity than anything else, because if you actually have a look at the the basic principle that they're arguing is that they need to protect four to three to ensure that there's jobs, that there's competition. Well, we all know that that's just not the case. I don't think there's anybody around the table now that thinks that Master's going to put his hand in his pocket and suddenly start spending more money in, you know, lowering prices for, for Sprint, you know, to be a bit more competitive, adding more stores, and spending more money on the network. So I think that if you think about what they're doing, and I, I, I pointed this out to them, that just blocking the merger is not going to help anybody. In fact, I think it's going to have the, the adverse effect. And my belief is if the merger does get blocked, three things will take place the next day. There will be 40 megahertz of spectrum to 60 megahertz of 2.5 on the market. Boost will still be on the market. And jobs will be slashed and stores will be closed because Sprint knows very quickly they need money and they can't sustain themselves. So I think that the Attorney General's understand the failing firm argument is probably a real one now. I think before it may have been a little bit of a try on by Brent, but I think they're coming to the conclusion that that's, a, uh, that that's a real issue. So the only way you can address that and address their concerns is effectively work with the DOJ, which I believe they are doing in lockstep, work with the DOJ, get your photo opportunity out so you can put yourself out there as looking like you were the ones that were trying to drive through for consumers, and then once the DOJ, who will solve that issue with a lot of what we're hearing... The AGs look pretty good, right? They'll be able to sit back and go, okay, we're dropping our lawsuit because now we've got a fourth network and we've protected all those customers. 
but their original blocking actually is the complete opposite of what they're trying to do. So I don't believe for a second that they're going to sue to block this merger. I think what they didn't like was the DOJ wasn't putting enough conditions attached to the merger. They've jumped the gun, got their photo opportunity in front of all the media to say we're the champions, and now they're going to concede that what the DOJ comes up with is something that will work. So I, I think you'll see when the DOJ comes out that the AGs will probably be standing next to, next to them going, we, we endorse this. So, you know, I'm, I'm going to respectfully disagree um, <laughs> on, on, a, sure. on a couple of points. I don't doubt that politics is involved. I don't doubt that photo opportunities are welcomed by all state AGs. But I think there was a significant uh, you know, motivation, which is simply that in the context of antitrust, this deal should be blocked, as as it was said, as the deal with AT&T and T-Mobile should be blocked, and we don't want four going to three, and there's, there, there's a lot of antitrust behind it. But let, it may be when the details come out that, Peter, you're exactly right, the state AG stand up, and may be that you're wrong, because it really depends on the details. But let me just address one of those details and, and one of the things that I've heard, which is you've just made a case that Sprint is not viable as a fourth, that they're not going to compete. And yet somehow the DOJ is going to argue that DISH, which has which will end up with less spectrum than Sprint currently has, which is essentially a startup as opposed to an ongoing enterprise, which will not have power leases and many of the things that you need for operation, will be dependent on an MVNO for some period of time from a competitor that has mixed motives in terms of how they implement uh, and enforce and then deal with that. That, 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 that is a – the dish is viable, but Sprint isn't. And I think within a number of folks around the state attorney generals, they just look at that argument and go, you know, look, if, if Masa wants to sell to somebody else who's not in the market, great. If he wants to sell the dish, great. But the, the notion that you're going to allow this merger and then replace it with a competitor whose odds of success based on the asset classes are lower, that just doesn't make any sense. And I think when you read the complaint and you, you look at the kinds of things that they're raising, it's not at all clear that all of them will be solved by, or, or, or most of them will be solved by a transaction with DISH. And DISH is certainly better from their perspective, as they've outlined in the complaint, than a you know financial buyer or a regional cable operator, and that national cable consortium would be different. I, I, yeah, so I think the confusing point is that everyone keeps using the MVNO term as a traditional MVNO today. I don't think there's anybody arguing that we want a traditional MVNO model. And in fact, my argument to the DOJ was, if that's all you get, I'm not interested in even taking a run at it, and I think it would be a complete and utter failure. I would think that the, the agreement that they're talking about is less an MVNO agreement, but more a domestic roaming agreement which allows the new entity the ability to use any network they choose, right, at their own speed and with their own controls put in place. So this concept of, well, the MVNO model doesn't work, it surely doesn't work as it exists today. But I don't think that that's what, that's what we're not asking for, and I'm pretty sure that nobody else is asking for that. If you get your own HLR and your own core network access into their network, you're effectively not using anything but their spectrum and their tower. So you truly do have a tremendous amount of leverage, which, by the way, is why no carrier in this country allows it. So if they get that through, what's the difference of physically owning your spectrum 
and physically owning your network or having access to that where you can control through leverage whichever network you want. Very similar to the fixed line business now where there's an exchange where you go in and you literally auction off and then they decide who you know, the cheapest price gets to carry that call. So I think we've got to get past the looking at, well, an MVNO traditionally cannot compete against a big carrier. That, that's absolutely true in the current form. But if they get full and unfettered access to a core network like T-Mobile, and by the way, I think it will drive AT&T and Verizon as well because most MVNOs will go straight to, to T-Mobile if you get that access, then you're in a very, very different space. And I think you've got a tremendous amount of leverage. Um, so I, I just want to make sure that we don't just look at the MVNO as, a, as we know it today as a dead model because it basically is. That we look at what they're asking for and what we're pleading for is that full access to that core network, which is effectively just like leasing spectrum and towers. So, Peter, what you're saying is that in Europe, where markets have gone from four to three, MVNOs have been the entities that have cured those competitive harms. And if we put conditions, if we put terms in place for those MVNOs that look like the the, what, the, the, the situations we've seen in Europe, then they can be viable competitors and have a have an impact on pricing and competitive intensity in the market. And I think we, we've absolutely seen that play out in Europe. There have been no price increases, broadly speaking, in the seven markets that have gone four to three, and returns on invested capital in those markets haven't improved for the, um, uh, for the established carriers. What Blair is saying is something different, though. In the U.S. market, MVNO companies without their own facilities haven't been considered as competitors in uh, by the by the regula- regulatory agencies in the past, and so I think the issue is you have to get past a regular a regulatory construct um, that's been in place for a long time and convince the the DOJ and the FCC that although MVNOs um, have not been considered viable competitors in the past. They are now because we're dealing with, with a very different kind of MVNO. In your discussion with the DOJ staff, do you think they're open to that perspective? Yeah, and, and absolutely. And by the way, I'm not the only one pushing this. If you talk to any cable company, including Comcast and Charter, if you ask them, would they be able to get full access to the core network? Would that make a big difference to them? Absolutely it does. And, and the fact is that last year, an extra 300,000 Australians signed up to use an MVNO for prepaid mobile phones. Around half as many signed up for a traditional MV, for a mobile network like Telstra, Optus, and, and Singtel. And there's a rule, and I'm playing in this space every single day because I still have MVNOs around the world. We are extremely competitive, and we are extremely aggressive, and we are driving down the main carriers to be able to bring that price down. But we've just got to get out of our minds this mentality of the traditional MVNO as we know it here, where you literally use the carrier's HLR, you resell their product, and you hope that they'll, uh, they'll give you good terms. If you can get access to that core network, by the way, which every carrier has today. So if you look at Verizon, the domestic and roaming agreement between Verizon and Sprint, right, they're not traditional MVNO models. If a Sprint customer needs to roam across onto a Verizon network, they use their HLR. So I think that if we look at that model, I just don't believe having to own a network over the next five to six years is going to be the holy grail. I think owning the customer and owning the relationship with the customer is going to be the key. And I think that with technology, if you look at eSIM technology, which is coming into the marketplace as well, 
I mean, if I had those Boost customers today, 8 million of them, and I went and sat down with AT&T or Verizon and said, I want to migrate those 8 million customers across, I would have to, it, it would almost be impossible. I mean, the most successful MVNO that's ever moved networks it was us in Australia. And we got to keep 60 to 70% of our customers. That was it. Because to migrate those customers, I have to send out a new SIM. I have to find out whether they're compatible, whether they're stuck on CDMA. So it literally would take me probably one, two, three, three years. I'd be better, better to just let them churn off. But if I had HLR or eSIM, I literally can switch those customers within a matter of seconds. So the barrier to get onto a network is, is very easy. The barrier to get off a network is very, very hard. So if you start solving some of these problems, um, and you make it easier, the leverage does fall back to the person with scale. And that's why I truly believe that it's imperative. And I think that, I think the DOJ gets it. I know the FCC gets it, that that's going to be one of the requirements that will come out. Is this at full access? Because that now changes. You become a domestic roaming partner, which, by the way, is what every carrier in this country does already. And by the way, they do it globally. You know, the biggest you know, in the world is, is T-Mobile when you leave this country. But, but Peter, I, I, you know, you, you you may be right in laying out a framework for what how the government should be treating MVNOs, but then that raises the question that, that, that would T-Mobile agree to that? Based on your discussions, uh, because and, and and Jonathan, you you may want to address this question. My, my understanding is T-Mobile actually doesn't want to; they'd rather walk from the deal than agree to that kind of MVNO. Am I right? Do, do I understand that correctly? Well, let's flush that out a little bit, just from an economical point of view. So do you know what the EBITDA margin is for a carrier on a wholesale customer as it is opposed to their own retail customer? Well, let me give you an example. So in Asia-Pacific, where we operate uh, some MVNOs, our EBITDA margin for the carrier is north of 50%. The EBITDA margin for a retail customer that they would get, the same customer they would get for their own retail business is around 33 or 35%. Because you don't have any of the marketing costs. I mean, you're effectively just selling air, right? The, the capacity already exists. So just from a pure economic point of view, the value of literally just having a white-labeled network, so if you had Sprint and you got rid of all their retail distribution, all their retailers, and you just said, listen, we're a wholesaler, come and use our network, that to me would be a far better model for a carrier to operate than try to get after their own retail customers. So the economic model for a carrier and why it convinces, I think it convince, you can convince T-Mobile and other carriers is that financially, if you set an MVNO up for success, they can be very, very profitable, in fact, more profitable than your own retail customers. And by the way, if you look at the cannibalization of us, so we cannibalize the networks that we're on about 20%, right? Which means 80% of the customers that we're getting are coming from another network. And the cost per gross ad for the carrier to get that 80% of those customers is zero. It's our Peter, haven't you just made an argument for the DOJ saying no to the deal and forcing MASA to essentially adopt a new business model like the one you just said? If I was them prior to this, that's what I've actually been calling for that from day one. I would literally get rid of all the retail stores and just say we no longer do sales and marketing. We're not spending $800 million on TV ads. All that stuff's gone. We're going to open up our network, and it's come one, come all. And that's what I would be doing. But the reality is they're not going to do that because the market, the investors, they value the ownership of these businesses based on their subscribers. And I don't think that they put a tremendous amount of value on a wholesale subscriber because arguably if you take what I've said in access to the core network, 
that that customer is not owned by the network. You literally are borrowing the network until you decide to move. So I think that if you're an investor, you may have to take a long, good look at uh, the existing business model, or at least the the investor thesis. But, but, but now you're making now you're making an argument that drives me to the conclusion that T-Mobile will not agree to what you're saying. And so I guess the question is, will the DOJ insist upon that kind of MBO? And if T-Mobile says no, then what does the DOJ do? Well, they have. They, 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 if, I think if you're the DOJ, that having T-Mobile walk away from the transaction is probably a pretty big political win. <laughs> you know, if you think about it, it would give you the, uh, I think, the get-out-of-jail-free card um, because there clearly is a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of opposition on the other side from the six Democrats and all the AGs. Then you've got all the other people that are for it. So I think that if you're Dorahim, having them walk away would probably be a pretty good outcome for it. So the, you wouldn't have to do a block. You wouldn't have to do anything. The Blair, I think Peter's argument would, or maybe Peter is making this argument, but I will. Uh, it, that Sprint really isn't in a position to flip their business model and become a wholesale provider because their spectrum hasn't been deployed and they don't have uh, they don't have a proper network to be that low cost uh, provider of gigabytes to come one come all. But if you put all of that spectrum in conjunction with T-Mobile spectrum on one network on 85,000 cell sites, T-Mobile would then have excess capacity that it could be within their interest to sell it on a wholesale basis. I'm, I'm like you, a little bit skeptical. I'm just not sure whether they would be they would be willing to accept that kind of a deal. Um, I know they've seen examples of this in markets like Italy, which they wouldn't want to revisit ever. There have been less damaging versions of deals like this in Germany, which I think they'd be loath to revisit, but maybe. Maybe they would. Peter, have you had discussions with the Timo guys directly? Do you have a sense of where their bright lines are in this process? Well, I think they're caught between a rock and a hard place because if they argue that they don't want these conditions in place because they don't want to stand up a fourth competitor to be able to truly compete, then if you're the DOJ, you'd be sitting back going, okay, well, why? Like, if you truly are interested in seeing a fourth competitor set up and we need that, then we need these conditions. So... The question you've got to have for, for T-Mobile is, is it truly that bad that you would wholesale your network out with these conditions? Um, you know, I would probably be going to, as I'm sure they are, to the new owners of Boost saying, that, that, that's fine, we'll give you that, but we want a, a six-year deal and, and we don't want you to go anywhere else, so we want an exclusive if we give that up. That could be a good way to overcome, because who knows where we'll all be in six years. So that could be a good way to overcome that. So they may say, look, fine, we'll give you full access, all the things that you want, but you've got to remain exclusive to us. So they've got a guaranteed revenue stream coming in from those customers. But to truly say that we want Boost to be competitive and then turn around and handicap Boost, I don't think the DOJ will even... I think that would just be a a, a non-starter. And I don't think T-Mobile would even go there. Um, I think that would just be... They might as well just walk away. So I, I think that they will agree. By the way, there are carriers pretty much every carrier around the world that offers the HLR full core access to MVNOs. This is not like a new revolution that I'm trying to create. Every successful MVNO outside this country has that, has that. And those carriers aren't suffering. In fact, we have a very vibrant MVNO market outside of America. So I don't think that it's the be-all and end-all that T-Mobile would walk away from it. And I know T-Mobile offers this in other markets where they exist. 
So one more question for you, and then we should get some questions in from uh, the guys dialing in, Peter. But I, I want to challenge you on the idea that a Leap Metro model with 40 megahertz of spectrum would be viable today. I think when Leap sold, and to a slightly lesser extent, but also when Metro sold, it was really on the basis that they had run out of the capacity to continue taking share and growing. And that as standalone entities, they were, they were viable, but they'd sort of hit a ceiling. And I think capacity consumption was much lower back then than it is now. And so you'd probably hit that ceiling on 40 megahertz of spectrum at even lower market share. Doesn't this asset have to go to somebody like Dish, um, who's got a pile of spectrum already? And so you're looking at a, 140 megahertz, not 40 megahertz, or a cable who can create capacity in a different way because they've got a very dense broadband network. Is there really a prospect of an independent, of an independent consortium putting a, business, a viable business together here? Well, I think there's two phases to this, right? The first phase is, you know, selling boost off in the assets with the main purpose of creating the fourth competitor for the low income and keeping the stores open, all the things that the DOJ is is ultimately concerned about, and low pricing in prepay. Now, you could argue that there's more competition needed, not just in prepay, but you need it in postpay. But if you just park the prepaid issue right now, that doesn't stop strategically DISH. That doesn't stop strategically Amazon or even Apple, for that matter, becoming or Google becoming a strategic investor in NUCO over a period of time, and whether that's in the, the first six to 12 months, or whether that's, you know, later or earlier. So I think strategically you do need and you will need, and I think that the, the fit between DISH and the NUCO will be an absolutely perfect fit, as you rightly point out, with the, the, the spectrum that they hold. But it doesn't have to happen now. Um, that could happen at some point over the uh, over a given period of time. And so I'm, I'm pretty confident that um, that whoever buys it, Remember, this is a political divestiture. This is not Sprint just saying, here's an asset we no longer need or it no longer fits in our portfolio. It's being spun out for a specific reason, right? And that is to maintain competition in the prepaid market. And I know that you said, you know, Metro and, and those guys had, had ran out of capacity, but that's not about this this time. This time is maintaining that Metro, which is a brand that survived and has continued to keep aggressive prepaid pricing as, as boost, that they continue to go kind of a hammer and tongue at each other. And as long as the DOJ protects that and gives the new owner the ability to be able to do that, then that's fine. And I think what we've done is we've overcomplicated it now by adding in the fourth network and all the other things and DISH and everybody else that's coming in that we kind of lost sight of the original reason that the FCC came out and said, we'll approve this if you divest Boost. And there's a specific reason they chose Boost. And everyone's like, ah, Boost is not big enough. It's got no scale. It's an MBNO. We know why they asked them to do it. It's because those two are literally the lion's share of the prepaid market. And they're in the low income and they have the 8,000 stores and the 30,000 employees. So we need to protect that. And that's why the, the FCC really just said that's all we really care about. Now, all I've said is that's 25% of the problem. You know, We need to get the other 75% done. And that is ensuring that the wholesale deal is everything that we've asked for. So I think if they give that, even without the spectrum divestiture and even without... Dish coming in, I still think that they've they've uh, they've given us enough competition in the marketplace to maintain and, and allow this merger to go through. And what do you think? Without the spectrum divestiture, um, the the boost assets are worth. So I think you said eight million subs 
on the right end, you know, deal was to EBITDA on that? Well, I've got my, my own kind of inside track of what I think the, the businesses work. So the first question you've got to ask is, is of the 8 million, how many are literally active? Um, I think that's the first question we have to, to, to ask. The second question we have to ask is the migration of those customers, those CDMA customers. You know, let's just say that a large chunk of them have handsets that aren't dual mode. So there's going to be a massive expense to be able to have to upgrade those customers from their current devices to move across to the new T-Mobile network. Well, who, who funds that? That's going to be very expensive. And then you're going to lose customers. I mean, there's no doubt. If you look at it, as I said, the most successful MVNO you know, moving from one network, us from Optus to Telstra, and we lost, you know, you know, 30 or 40% of our customers because it gives people an opportunity to look around, right? Because you literally have to reach out to them, which is the other issue. It's not like the prepaid customers give you, you know, very, very good uh, address information and contact information. So there is a real dilemma there. So we've really got to look at what are you actually buying? Um, and I had ideas related that we presented to the DOJ where you would make it kind of like a, an earnout based on EBITDA. So if the EBITDA started to decline, they didn't get as much money for it. So there are, there are a bunch of tricky questions that need to be answered. And I guess that's going to be uh, the next phase of the, uh, the process is once they approve this with Goldman's is looking at exactly what are you buying and what truly is the EBITDA. Um, and I think that anyone who's putting 3 to $5 billion on boost literally has no idea what they're talking about because I just don't think it's that solid. Right. Operator, we're going to open it up for questions if you could run through the instructions. Before you do, um, anybody who, who would rather not ask a question on an open mic can email questions to Ethan Lacey at ethan.lacey at newstreetresearch.com. And uh, Operator, while you're queuing up, um, we'll see if Ethan's got any questions from investors already. But go ahead and, and read, read instructions, please. Thank you. To ask a question over the phone, please press star 1 on your telephone keypad. Ethan, any questions on your end at this point? Uh, you guys covered a lot of uh, a ground, but you know, one I did just have would be Peter. You know, you kind of discussed, uh, you know, some some thoughts around Timus's walkway point. I'm just curious if you have any view as to how that might diverge from the parent or DT. You know, what the difference between DT's thoughts on, you know, walkaway or breaking points would be relative to T-Mobile. Thanks. I think the uh, if you look at the German. That mentality, and we've all worked with Germans, is they like to do deals. They don't like to walk away. So I think their tolerance to get a deal done is probably a little higher than potentially the uh, than John and the American team here. So I think that they'll do whatever it takes to get a deal done. I think that uh, they'll be a lot more flexible in uh, in getting there. They've also got their own backyard to look at, so they've got to be fairly careful about what they do in relation to, uh, to, to here in the U.S. So they want to be somewhat flexible in ensuring competition is maintained. So... My belief is that you'll be able to push the Germans a lot further than potentially the uh, the Americans here. Operator, do we have any questions dialed in? Not at this time, but just as a reminder, that star one if you would like to ask a question over the phone. I've got one more for you, Peter. The, given that you've got these businesses in different markets around the world, it would it'd be great to get some insight into if you if you if you pick up eight million subs with an MVNO that has all the requirements that you've listed, what, what else do you need in terms of core network assets and capabilities, and, and what does that cost you? I, presumably there's sort of some fixed network costs that you need to, be in, you need to put in place in order to, to manage the, the SIM and the HLR, and, and what does that cost? 
So, the, the, I mean, the cost can vary. The one thing that we're working on, which I think is the future of how we're going to connect, is is moving this all to the cloud. And I think that that's, if you look at some of the successful MVNOs around the globe, that's exactly what they're doing. So starting to move the ability that the customer sits in the cloud and we can now you know, truly move them around as we want to move them around and it becomes a very light touch. So the expense changes dramatically based on, you know, a thick MVNO or a full MVNO is clearly a lot more expensive to set up than a, uh, a light MVNO, which is the traditional model that you have here in the US, which is why you, you find a lot of people coming into the MVNO space with very little capital. And I think there's over 300 here. There's probably over 60 in, in, in Australia. There are probably a handful, uh, there's none here in the US, but there are definitely a handful of, um, of thick MVNOs throughout Europe, but that requires a significant amount of capital to be able to do that. And I'm talking, you know, in, in the, obviously the tens of millions uh, to set that up. So the upside to that is that you do get incredibly good leverage and incredibly good margins. The margins go up. So the barrier to entry to a thick MVNO is very much, is very high, where it's very light um, on a light MVNO. So you do you do need the required capital. But again, as I said, you truly are a network. You're a hybrid network. You just don't happen to, you know, the, the carry doesn't own you. You're not using their HLR. You're not using their billing. You're not using their customer care. You're literally just leasing their towers and their spectrum, which I think is the, I believe it's the future model as we move forward over the next five to six years. So, Peter, we do actually have an example of a retail minus MVNO in the U.S. I think that's what Comcast and Charter have with Verizon. They do not have SIM control. But it's, it's, and these are our estimates. We don't actually know the terms of their MVNO, but we think if retail revenue per gigabyte is somewhere around 10 bucks, their wholesale cost is probably somewhere, somewhere around 4 bucks, or maybe between 4 and 5 do you think that plus uh, SIM control, do you, do you, do you, well, I guess my question is, do you think those are the right economics? You can make money in an MVNO if you're buying at $4 a gigabyte and uh, the retail rate's $10 a gigabyte? Yeah, the, the question I have is, is there a flaw? So, you know, if a lot of the MVNOs around the globe had this retail minus model and then suddenly anyone started offering $10, $15 plans and they would have built their whole business model around a $40 or $50 average customer, and then suddenly this customer dropped down to 15 to $16, and their model kind of tanked. So there has to be a flaw in the ability to protect yourselves from the carrier being able to just literally wipe you out, which they can pot- potentially do if they go into a price war. So I'm not sure whether Comcast and Charter truly do have a retail minus model. I, uh, I would think that there would be a bunch of hooks in that, but uh, I haven't seen uh, any carrier here in the U.S. That, that I've spoken to, any MBNO that I've spoken to, that has that retail minus model. And I can guarantee it definitely doesn't exist on T-Mobile. So if, if there's a – the only other retail minus model I saw was back in the day when uh, Clearwire had one with Sprint. When they were working, I was working back there at Clearwire. That's the only one that I actually saw where – Sprint had offered up a retail minus model to Clearwire when they were obviously trying to court each other. But short of that, I have not seen that on AT&T, T-Mobile, and, and I'd be somewhat surprised if it was on uh, Verizon. Yeah, I think it's, it's, it exists in sort of one very unique instance in the context of a deal that was, sold, that was inked when Verizon really needed some spectrum from the cable guys. Um, and so okay, I don't yeah, think that, that could be true. Yeah, I don't think those terms have ever been made available to anyone else, or nor would they be. Um, but yeah, I was just wondering from an, from an economic perspective, 
if you're buying it for and the market's at 10, that's a, um, whether that's viable. Yeah, but you also look at the, the cable guys, the cable guys don't care about prepaid. I mean, they're, they're bundling, right? They're, their whole concept right. is, you know, they're in their area, they're not going into the urban areas, they're not, and that's why, you know, it's quite ironic that we're looking to the cable companies to somehow be the crusaders for low-income prepaid customers. I found that somewhat funny because it's not like it's in their DNA <laughs> to, to want to be crusaders for low-income prepaid customers. It's kind of quite the opposite. So um, that's the issue that I, that's why I keep questioning the whole cable prearranged deal because I know what the DOJ is trying to achieve and the question is, is that what the cable companies are trying to achieve? I don't think they care about prepaid. I really don't think they do. Um, yeah, that, the, this is the single reason why we're getting these divestitures. I think there's almost no prospect of the cable guys buying Boost. I think uh, Comcast came out with a statement um, and said they're they're definitively not buying Spectrum or uh, or Boost. I think they'd all love a much better MVNO with SIM control along the ones that uh, along the terms that you've described. And if that's the case, it would need to be sort of a two-part solution: cable being considered a competitor in the postpaid market with much better MVNO terms and somebody else ending up with the boost um, and maintaining com- competition in the prepaid market. Ethan, any more questions on your end? I do, and one of them was on cable, but I think we just kind of addressed that. It, you know, Based on your opening remarks, Peter, uh, it seemed to suggest that you thought cable was more in the driver's seat than DISH, sort of despite the headlines, but I, it seems like, you know, based on what you just said and sort of Jonathan iterating the New Street view, that you do question the idea of, of cable with the boost model, and that's where that question was directed. I'm going to move to a different one that was, uh, again, sort of focused more on DISH and the idea of a, a deeper MVNO. You know, let's assume a deeper, you know, MVNO deal does get done with HLR access, et cetera. What type of incremental market share do you think DISH might be able to actually capture in that type of scenario? Well, I think significant, to be quite honest with you. Um, and I, don't, I wouldn't just put it down to DISH. I would put it to whoever that that fourth entrant is, I think it's going to be somewhat significant. If you look at the, just look at the pure metrics of how, and I hate using the term MVNO because it brings up so many negative connotations, but if you look at our business in other parts of the world, the the CPGA, the cost per gross ad that it costs me to actually get a customer is somewhere in the vicinity of $40 to $50. The cost to get that exact same customer, probably even a less quality customer by a carrier is around $333. So the physical costs that they have, the infrastructure costs, which is why you're seeing tremendous layoffs. You know, I think Verizon 14,000, and you look at, I think it was 127,000 laid off around the industry. The physical costs to run these carriers is so high, and they were all built around extremely high margins when we didn't have the penetration levels we had and we didn't have the unlimited war going on. So that's why I'm somewhat dubious about the T-Mobile. Oh, don't worry, we're going to hire more people after we close this transaction, when every single carrier in the world, you look at Telstra as an example, they laid off 14,000 people, and they make $8 billion. So they literally pay out a dividend, and they're laid off, as did AT&T. So the costs that these companies have are tremendous. So if you just look at the the, the MVNO model, you can be very, very targeted, very laser-focused. We should be able to offer better customer care, which is the single biggest issue that most people complain about. You should be able to get that customer for a lot less, and you should be able to be very laser-focused and target target those customers. And you look at some of the retail margins even that came out with Verizon yesterday. You look at their retail business versus their small business. So I truly believe that a light 
fully functional MVNO. And I liken it very much to Airbnb and, and to Uber. I mean, they don't own the infrastructure, right? They move customers between one point and the other point. They service that customer. Well, a future-looking MVNO should do the exact same thing, and it shouldn't matter whether it's a Tesla or whether it's a Camry or whether it's a Ford Taurus that's going to pick you up, it should be what do you need at that given time. So it shouldn't matter whether it's Verizon, AT&T, or Sprint, or whether it's Wi-Fi, or whether it's satellite. Uh, it should matter on what you need at that particular time. And I think those those platforms that will eventually come around, which is what we're proposing to do, is where we see the future of this business going. Now, everyone goes, well, that will regulate the carrier to just being a dumb pipe. And I'm like, and? There's nothing wrong with being a pipe if you can make money. In fact, I argue you probably make more money being a pipe than trying to go toe for toe at retail. That's right. And and actually, my next question was specifically to you, Peter, and I related to sort of what you just addressed, which was, you know, if you would, a would you consider a new MVNO with or a deeper MVNO with T-Mobile, a pro former T-Mobile, if they were offering that platform, and how would you compete? I guess better customer care and a more laser focus where is basically your response to that question. Anything additional that you would add? Or? Yeah, well, just, just the cost to acquire that customer is significantly cheaper through an MVNO model than it is through a traditional carrier model, and that's just because of the legacy of the last 20 years. Got it. And then the next question, again, just to follow up, is is would you consider joining Dish to run the Boost business for Charlie? And have you had any talks with Charlie about that? I uh, would be interested in talking to anybody that uh, is interested in maintaining the Boost brand, maintaining the, the prepaid competition in the marketplace, and truly wants to be innovative in this space. You know, clearly I don't have the 2 or $3 billion that's required to do this, so I would be partnering with, with somebody. I think the ideal partnership, in my opinion, is with a cable company like Charlie, with a PE fund, because obviously you need, Charlie's going to need capital, so with a dish is going to need capital, with a PE fund, who is a long-term focused PE fund, and then someone like our team that comes in and, and wants to continue to innovate and create competition in the prepaid market and, and take it to Metro and Cricket uh, and, and literally save those stores. I think that that is the ideal uh, buyer for, uh, for, for for new boost and for that fourth competitor. So the strategic in a cable company, the PE fund that provides the capital with a longer-term focus, and then our team, I think that that would be a, a home run. Got it. And, and if I could just pivot away back to the regulatory perspective, do you have any thoughts on why the DOJ chair and, and the FCC chair have seemed so eager to get the deal through? The, and this is just coming from... A question from the field, but you know, it reads, you know, it seems that they've sort of put the cart before the horse and are willing to agree to a deal without having sort of worked out the details prior. My own belief is, as I've said this before, this is not a bottle of wine. It's not getting better with age. There is a tremendous amount of disruption that's going on in both these companies. And I'm talking to both Metro PCS dealers and I'm also talking to Boost dealers. I'm also talking to customers. I'm also talking to providers of services to these brands. So whether it's through, you know, the billing, whether it's through, you know, customer care, there is, these businesses are really suffering. And every morning, there's about 35 to 40,000 people who get up every morning not knowing whether they're closing a job, closing a store, firing people. So I think that the, the pressure is now being put on, you know, and I would be if I was Sprint. The pressure is now being put on saying, you know what, you, you can't keep dragging this thing out. This is starting to affect our business. I do not believe Sprint, even though Sprint was in a bad position when they announced this merger, I believe over the last 12 months it's got worse because of the merger. 
So how much longer do these people have to sit there in, you know, not knowing what's going on? So I think that, I think Chairman Pai came out and said, you know what, we need to get a conclusion to this. And I think that if you look at what he agreed to, he agreed to the thing that was the most concern of the AGs, the most concern of the senators, and the most concern of most negative, the CWA and everybody else, was he addressed 85% of the critics with this merger by the divestiture of, of Boost and the, and the kind of build-out of the network uh, through rural areas. I think the deal... With respect, Peter, with respect, Peter, I just have to say, for the, for the sake of our audience, uh, I believe, based on my conversation with the critics, that to say he addressed 85%, that they, I don't know of any critic of the deal who would actually agree with that. So, well, I, can say I mean, you're, you are welcome to your opinion. I'm just well, saying. <laughs> well, my opinion is based on the fact that that number that the CWA quotes about the 30,000 employees came from me. If you look at their original uh-huh. number that they quoted, they quoted 2,500. I rang them up and I said, you guys, what are, what are you talking about? So I worked through mm-hmm. that. If you look at the concerns that the AGs put in their complaint, 85% of that is related to dealers, independent network dealers, maintaining the low income and making sure that there's pressure. There's very little talk. Peter, I've, I've read the complaint, and I just, again, their, their complaint is a traditional. The first thing they talk about is concentration. They talk about price increases. They talk about very traditional antitrust stuff. It really isn't about jobs. If you look at the headlines, okay, well. put out, no one's going to read. No one's going to read the. Who's going to read the actual complaint? I mean, most people. I guess just me. I, maybe it's yeah. just me. But I mean, the majority of people are going to read, read the thirty thousand foot level PR they put out. And if you look at that, it clearly focuses in on three things, which are the three things that I've highlighted way before anybody else did. I mean, what are, what are the things that that boost that they're looking for? Uh, other than they're looking for competition, right? They think that it's not fair. And I'm like, fine, in prepaid, that's true, because Metro and Boost, by divesting Boost and giving it the right way to succeed, it can continue to maintain the pressure on Metro, which is where the lion's share of the prepaid's coming from. So if you look at the 30,000 jobs they're talking about, that's true. That's only the independent wireless dealers. I mean, there's no other 30,000 jobs that you can think of. And the CWA has cited that at the Senate hearings. And by the way, I met with every... So when John had his first Senate hearing, and he was sitting there, and he basically called me out halfway through or three-quarters of the way through, going, I know where this is all coming from. He's right. I had met with every single one of those senators and their staff prior to the Senate hearings to give them the brief because I was the first in with the DOJ and I was the last out with the DOJ. All the things that, they, that are being highlighted about the concerns of this merger were also related effectively to the information that we provided. So I'm not like sitting back going, we're the only ones, but... I truly believe, and I haven't had anyone come out and tell me, you know, there are 25% concerns there, which I, I acknowledge, but 85% of the jobs, the low income, the prepaid, is, a, is addressed by Chairman Pai's uh, letting, uh, letting Boost be divested. And by the way, John didn't want to do that. He has never wanted to give up Boost. And you know why he doesn't want to give up Boost? Because 70% of Sprint's postpay customers come from Boost. This is their happy meal for their postpay customers. So they sell them on a Happy Meal toy with a 99-cent toy, and then they flip them to postpaid. Metro is no different. So don't think of Boost prepaid as just prepaid. It's a large part of their postpaid growth. So that's why he didn't want to give it up, because I'll be able to migrate those Boost customers from prepaid to postpaid just as well as he will be able to. So, you know, don't you think it would have been easy for T-Mobile to come out and say, yeah, yeah, have Boost. We don't care about Boost. We don't care about Metro. They didn't say that. They were adamant. They fought. In fact, John went on under oath and said, 
Oh, they don't even compete against each other. They're two separate markets. And we forced John to have to reposition Metro as T-Mobile, Metro by T-Mobile. They didn't intend to do that. That was through the fact that they were trying to separate the boost business from the Metro business. So you've got to look at you know the, the facts here, and the facts are the migration from non-branded postpaid customers from prepaid is significant for both those carriers. That was actually at my end, Jonathan, and we've actually come up on the hour, so if you can yeah. have the call, that'd be awesome. Cool. Yeah, Peter, I was just going to say, Blair has made uh, John Legere angry with some of his comments on this deal <laughs> over the course of the last Good. six months. You must have made him really, really angry. I'm, uh, I'm surprised he hasn't called you out on, on an earnings call at this point. This has been a... I've asked for a debate, by the way. I've, I've offered that guy a live debate. 17 times. And for a guy, you know, the, the magenta mouth out there in Seattle who loves to talk and beat everybody else up, he's extremely quiet when it comes to me. So I think we should uh, I think we should incorporate it in the presidential debates kicking off in the next couple of weeks. Um I yeah. think adding well, you you and Legere to um to uh to a couple of the debates would definitely liven things up. Make them oh, I'd, I'd love to debate him on this. I would absolutely love to debate him on this, but he won't. This has been uh, really interesting. Thanks a lot for joining us on the call today and giving us your insights. I think it's we've got a we've definitely got a, dif- a bit of a different view on the sort of political and regulatory landscape than you do. But your insights on the prepaid market and the economics in prepaid are um, a perspective a lot of U.S. investors just don't have. It's it's I think we often forget that the MDNO model can be really successful um, if it's structured on the right terms and it's, it's actually had a big impact on competitive yeah. dynamics in markets all over the world. We don't see it here in the U.S., but it's, it, it doesn't mean it, MDNOs can't be structured differently and have a, have a really big impact. And your experience on that front is super instructive. So thanks, thanks for the time. We really appreciate it. Yeah, and as I said, if we all agreed, we'd be living in a very boring world. So I, I love yeah. to debate. I love to debate it. Um, awesome. And thanks uh, thanks for everyone who managed to dial in for the call. I'm sorry we're, we, I feel like we're sort of cutting things off mid-debate here. There's a lot of really interesting um, stuff that we haven't got to. Um, but uh, please come back to us with, with questions and we'll try and get Peter's perspective to the extent that he's willing to to continue engaging and debating with us. We'll, we'll get his, his perspective back to you guys as best as we can. So please keep the questions coming. Thanks all. That does conclude today's conference. Thank you all for your participation. You may now disconnect.